friends? It's great to see you all here today. Um, We have a beautiful text of scripture to unpack. It's been a complicated one for me. I'll be honest with you. I think, I'll explain some pieces, but I think part of it is I'm a little jealous for Jesus, and I'll explain that in a second. The other part is this is a text of scripture that gets talked about a lot, and I think gets misused a little bit. And the third piece is that that Hosea text is wonderful. And so even as Jeffrey was doing the Hosea reading, I found myself going, oh, oh, I should teach on that text. Because it's just so beautiful. But the reason we do those readings together is because what Jesus says here in Matthew 9 is connected to that text in Hosea. So why don't we just go through it together. Um, I think where my heart's at in the preparation of all of this and the prayer around it is I, I want to live the text, not just understand it. I want the truth that Jesus is, is pointing to and unpacking to be my lived experience. And I want it to be true of our church, this, this community, in our friendship together and our life together in Christ. And so I'll, I think part of what I feel with this text today is that it, it's going to take time for you as individuals, for me. I found myself just going, I'm going to have to keep praying about this one because I really want to inhabit it. Now, where we ended last week was on Jesus' statement to the Pharisees, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Another Hosea excerpt. That this is at the heart of the gospel. This is at the heart of the way of Jesus. Is that it's fundamentally about God's sacrifice to save us from sin, not our religious sacrifice to earn God's favor. That's the fundamental of the gospel, right? But here's what we see in this following text. is It's not just the Pharisees that we see wrestling with Jesus' teaching. It's not just them. It's also, how does verse 14 start? Who asked Jesus the next question? The disciples of John the Baptist, the baptizer. I think it's helpful to say that. People are like, oh. So Jesus has his church and then John started the Baptist church? No, that's not what happened. So it's John the baptizer. So what we see, though, is that Jesus is teaching here that that God desires mercy and not sacrifice. It upsets the whole cart. So even John's disciples find themselves going, we need some clarification here on what this means. Because they can tell the way Jesus teaches and the way he leads his followers is different from what they expected it to be. And that expectation is what they're dealing with here. They're struggling to reconcile how Jesus' way feels compared to John's way. Now Jesus calls John, so John is the cousin of Jesus. If we go back to the 
beginning of the Gospels and that whole outworking. What we see is that God calls John to be uh, to provide a preparation for the Messiah. Beautiful story. From the first moment Jesus and John come in proximity to each other in their mother's wombs, John jumps, leaps, it says, in his mother's womb because of the presence of the Holy Spirit. Isn't that lovely? And so John's purpose is to call the nation of Israel with a message of repentance. John is saying to all of them, the way that you have been living is not the good way. That you are not following God's commands, you're not fulfilling the covenant, and you need to turn from your ways and prepare for the Messiah. The language John uses is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So John knows what Jesus is going to do. Now, what ends up happening, though, is that John's lifestyle kind of suits his message. John lives in the wilderness. John is sustained eating locusts, wild honey, and is clothed in camel hair. When you look at the traditional icons of John the Baptist, I think he kind of looks like a Sasquatch. But he's just this wild figure. And his life and his message are all communicating that this like mingling of your life with the worldliness of Rome and all of this is watered down your connection to God. And so he calls them to something radical. He calls Israelites, Jews, to be baptized. Baptism at that time was primarily for the Gentiles entering into Israel's worship of Yahweh. So to be baptized, you'd have to say, essentially, I'm not really a Jew. I need to become like a Gentile who enters in afresh. Do you see why the Pharisees have difficulty with that? Because the Pharisees would have to say, everything that we have been doing is insufficient. We're not truly living the commands or keeping the covenant, we're going to come in, we're going to start all over again as though we never believed, come in like the Gentiles, and be ceremonially washed. See it? That's a big deal. People who have grown up in the system for a long time are mature, hold the places of leadership, right? They're on all the councils. And now they're saying, we want you to come low and and start all over again. Is that a tough pill to swallow? So this is the Pharisees' hesitancy. Okay? But John's disciples don't have that hesitancy. John's disciples are the most spiritually attuned. They do it. And they go follow John into the wilderness and live with him. Live on locusts and wild honey. Live in constant states of discomfort. Uh, When I was looking through it, you kind of have this sense of like, wow, John's disciples are the real deal. And so I do think we actually should respect them in this story and not categorize them too quickly. Now, because of this way of living, though, And what it took to be a disciple of John, now they see Jesus come in with his disciples and they're not even following 
the fast. So they're not fasting. They're eating on the Sabbath. That's going to come up later in the book of Matthew. They see him eating with sinners and tax collectors. And so imagine trying to process that information as a disciple of John. Everything you've had to give up in order. Now you have to, you have to let all that go in order to follow Jesus. So verse 14 is where we start off. Then the disciples of John came to him saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not? And here's what's behind the question. Why do we have to live this way and you don't? Aren't you supposed to take this even more serious than we do? Isn't that a fair assumption? And why does your way seem lighter instead of more weighty than the way we've been living? So here we have the most spiritually responsive people in Israel, call them the early investors, are now trying to understand what Jesus is getting at. So verse 15 is where we have Jesus' response to them. And Jesus, in very teacherly fashion, responds with a very clear answer. No, he asks them a question. This is, Jesus loves to mess with his students. And by mess with them, I mean make them think about it for themselves. Make them wrestle with the ideas and make sense of it. So here's the question he poses to them. Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? Jesus' question here sets up an analogy of a wedding feast. Now, John's responsibility, essentially, as a family member of Jesus, was to prepare for the wedding feast. Now, Stephen and Lexi here, do you want to give them a little wave? Sorry, I'm waking you up there, Lexi. How long have you been married? Six months. Look how cute they are. <laughs> little spring chickens. Okay, so now their family around them, did your family have to do a lot of work for your wedding? Yeah. Yeah, it costs a lot, doesn't it? Right, so this is kind of the analogy that I think Jesus is starting to make is to go, you're preparing for this big moment. You know the wedding's coming. and There's a lot of work that goes into that, isn't there? And the family's hard at work doing all that preparation, setting up the tables and the chairs and the decorations and the stupid place settings that you think are going to make or break the wedding. And you know, I've done too many of these things. Right now, have you ever been to a wedding where you show up to the reception and you can smell the food, it's in the building, but then that couple is out there taking extra photos? You ever had that and they just never show up? I've, I've been at weddings where I've sat there for like two hours just waiting for them to show up so we can eat. It's like, I know it's your day, but feed me while we wait for you, right? But this is part of kind of the setup here is that everyone that's waiting for the groom to arrive so they can start the feast. That's the, that's the analogy here. Now, as family members, you're hard at work preparing it for that moment. Right? And I've done so many of these weddings as family, but as pastor and priest. And, but Jackie used to plan weddings for people all the time. She thought it would be fun to go, I'll be your wedding planner for free. 
It's like, great. So what does that make me? That makes me just the, the unpaid help. That's what that makes me. So when she, now she carries in her head everything that needs to go into this wedding, right? Everything has to be done. Me, on the other hand, I'm like, tell me where to go. Tell me what to do. And if no one's looking, I'm going to sneak a little bit of food. Right? That's my type. I'll reach in there and steal a piece of bacon or whatever, as long as no one sees it. But Jackie's kind of like the John's disciples here. She's going, there's too much to do to prepare, and we will eat after. Right? Because if she catches me, she goes, don't eat that. It's not time for that. Right? That's essentially kind of the dynamic that we have at work here. The overly responsible person and the person that's actually ready to feast and celebrate. <laughs> I'll let you determine who is who in this analogy. Okay? So what we end up with, though, is that once the bridegroom arrives, the people who've been working so hard for this moment, have sacrificed so much, can't turn it off. They can't stop. And they can't just shift gears into feasting. You ever been at a wedding where like the mother-in-law just keeps running around? Always finding more to do? Can't just sit and celebrate the moment? Because she's th that's how she's trying to express her love for the moment. Right? Make sure everything's in order. This is what we see. Is they're going, why are you guys feasting? And Jesus is trying to go, this is everything you've been preparing for, and now it's no longer appropriate to keep preparing. Why? Because he's here. Now, the language that he uses is very important language because what he's trying to show here is both the fulfillment of some Old Testament prophecy and language here, but also get at the nature of the gospel, of the new covenant, and how it shifts. Now, in Isaiah, we have God, this is where God uses this language for the first time, Isaiah 54. Listen to how God talks about himself. For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name, and the Holy One of Israel is your redeemer, the God of the whole earth, he is called. So we have this sense of Yahweh, right? The maker, the redeemer, the one who created the whole earth. But then he says, but I am your husband. Deeply intimate language. No other God or religion speaks this way. So then it comes up again in Hosea. Now we looked at Hosea last week. The prophet Hosea was commanded by God to take a wife who was in the sex trade as an analogy to the people of Israel to show God's steadfast love and faithfulness towards them. And what happens in the story is Hosea takes her as his wife, loves her, but she can't break that pattern. She can't stop but go back to that lifestyle over and over and over again. Now here's a beautiful little Easter egg in that text. Do you hear that part where God said, all of her wealth actually came from me? Isn't that a beautiful piece? Even somebody living in open sand, being abused and exploited, 
all God's faithfulness is still present in her life and he's still lavishing provisions upon her. Isn't that beautiful? He doesn't leave her, does he? And part of the process that happens in Hosea is God is saying to him, to Hosea, don't you dare give up on her. I don't give up on Israel. Because Hosea wants to. Hosea wants to say she's done it. She did it again. Can we stop this analogy? And God's commandment to him is, no, your job is to represent my heart. Stick with her. Beautiful. It's just so beautiful. So then Hosea verse, sorry, chapter 2, verse 14. This is where he says, in all of, so she's going to keep choosing this. It's going to lead to calamity, inevitably. But in the midst of that calamity, this is what I'm going to do to her. Therefore, behold, I will allure her. This is how God talks about Israel. I will allure her, woo her, and bring her into where? The wilderness. So right when we think like our life, has, all our sins have led to colossal calamity, and there's no hope for us, God views it as alluring us into a, a desolate place where we can hear him. I will allure her into the wilderness and speak. How does God speak to us in the wilderness? Tenderly to her. This is the heart of God. And Jesus is saying, this is who I am. That he is the bridegroom alluring his bride into the wilderness, John the Baptist's ministry, where they recognize all of our worldliness and the way we have been living and the way we've been trying to keep this up in the religious system isn't working for us. And in the wilderness, God speaks to her tenderly, drawing her to what? A new covenant. A new transformative covenant. So this language then, a bridegroom, is Jesus saying, I'm the one that's come to be the groom to you, the bride. So what's being pictured here is that Jesus is saying, not only is the time of preparation ended, and it's now the time for feasting, but it's also the time for intimacy. It's the time for closeness. It's the time where God's presence is given to the individual. And that all of God's promises for salvation are available to the individual. Is this good news? So if all, if, if the Savior is here and the promises are fulfilled and salvation is at hand, what's the appropriate response to that? Eat. Eat. Feast. That's the appropriate response is to go, if all of this is available, we should probably eat it. We should probably take it in for ourselves and enjoy it. So hear me, here's the principle at work in this. The most fundamental element of being a disciple or apprentice of Jesus is of his nowness, his nearness, that he is here. It's of intimacy. This is why so much of our faith 
lifts up this central act of saying, if God is all about giving grace, then we should be what? All about faith. We, faith is the mechanism by which we receive what's been given. God is saying, here's the feast. Faith is saying, I'm going to eat. I'm going to participate in the feast. I'm going to have it. So Christianity then is first and foremost a feast before it is a fast. You hear me? Part of that is the recognition that because Christ is given and because Christ is present and because Christ has made himself available, our primary focus is on what? The Christ. He gets all of our attention. Now, the Christ has come to fix something, right? The problem, the sin, the brokenness, the shame, the guilt, the separation. But it never covers up the Christ. So hear me, even though we're a repenting people, a confessing people, a sin-aware people, first and foremost... We're a Christ-focused people. We're seeing His goodness and His wonders and His glory, and we love that, and we eat eat upon that. And because we see who He is, we believe He accomplishes what He promises for sin, for death, for eternity. This is how we should describe our walk with Christ. Primarily, A feast upon grace made available and present now. So here's what that means. Do you have needs? Do you have sins? Do you have big problems? Do you have questions? Do you have hardships and suffering? I can't hear you. Pretty common? What gets the bulk of our attention. Those things. Those things get the bulk of our attention. And what we tend to do is we say, we take steps back and we go, oh, this is hard. This sucks. What a mess. So heart-wrenchingly difficult. I wish God would act. Isn't that what we say? We pray for miraculous interventions, don't we? Oh, God, do something. Do you see what? That is waiting. That's preparing. Ah, here's the problem. I wish God would send a solution. Do you see how this is diametrically opposed to the fundamentals of the faith? Because the fundamental, what's the creed say? Has God sent his son? Has he come in flesh, born of a virgin? Has he suffered and died under Pontius Pilate? Was he raised from the dead in the resurrection? Is he ascended, ruling and reigning over the creation? Can't hear you. That's the confession. God has happened. God has acted. God has intervened. God is present. Isn't that what we confess? So the primary function of the Christian life should be a recognition of who God is, what God has done, 
and laying hold of it by faith for the present circumstance. Am I pushing that too hard? That's the main point. I think too often Christians are going hungry, primarily not because they haven't been fed. I mean hungry spiritually. Not because they haven't been fed, but because they're avoiding the feast for some reason. So much has already been given. Here's what I'm realizing at this moment. I don't have enough time to do all three analogies today. So we're just going to stop on this one. But here's a few questions I want to ask you. I think there's four kind of key categories that make up Christians. I think the first is like John's disciples. Those who are working for the bridegroom but missing out on the feast as the bride. And the predominant ideology that's going on inside is there's too much work to be done. So that might be some of you. Certain personality types are more prone to this than others. I think the second type of person in the church is this. Those who are so used to starving spiritually that they don't see the feast as really for them. They see themselves more in starvation, where they go, I'm just lucky to be in the room. I've learned how to starve well. I'm content in it. I don't complain. I don't deserve more. And all the while, Jesus is saying, take and eat of grace. Feast. And they're going, it'd be nice. Or it's like an internal phrase of like, I don't need a lot. I don't want to be a bother. What does that say to the bridegroom? In the presence of the bridegroom, we should what? Throw off restraint. We should lay down our responsibilities, so to speak, and see him as the primary actor. I think that's what John's disciples need. But for those who have become too accustomed to starvation, they should say, I see that this feast has no end. I'm not going to take more than I'm allowed. I'm not going to get in trouble here. There's grace available, and I'm going to throw off that old survivalistic identity and eat. The third type of person is this. Those who are so full already on the world that they don't see the feast as really necessary. And here's how you know that. If you show up to church and you go, I'm not really that hungry. I'm actually doing pretty good. I come to church for other people. Okay? That's That's a bit of a red flag. Now, it could be a sign of health in that you have a thriving, intimate walk with Jesus. Okay? but it also could be a flag that you're not hungry for the feast because you've been eating somewhere else. And the questions you have to ask are, is it good food? Like, what are the outcomes of what I'm eating? 
Does it actually lead to more health? I'll be honest, sometimes I go on a poutine kick. Maybe I'll be like, this week is poutine week. I I might have it like three times. And you know what I feel after the first time? One Costco poutine is enough. You ever have one of those? You just ate that and you're like, this was a big life mistake. (laughs) It's good on the front end, but by the time you're handing that lady that receipt, you're going, mistakes were made. That's my first. Marshall's shaking his head. But spiritually, that's, that's part of the question is to go, how are you coping in life? That's the fundamental question, I think. How are you coping? How do you handle the stresses of this life? What do you turn to? Because that's where you eat. And if it's not Jesus, what are the negative outcomes that come from eating where you've been eating? Now, the fourth category is this. Those who are enamored with Jesus, who feast on His every word, His quiet presence, and seek to follow His every step. That's the other category. Now, let's be honest. We all fall into all the categories. Is that fair? I do a bit of all of it. But I think, like when we look at this text of Scripture, I think people too often skip down to the, let's talk about the new wine, old wineskins. They love that part. And they want to talk about, you know, revivals and movements and how churches need to break up their structures in order to have that. And we'll, we'll talk about some of that stuff but we will miss the main point of this text. The main point of this text is the bridegroom is here. The feast is ready. And if we overshoot that and go to the other two analogies, we miss the main point. Do we love the true good stuff? That's the question. Are we in it for the bridegroom? Are we in it for the true wine? Because he is the good wine. That's what's at the heart of this text. Do we actually love him? Do we trust him? Do we receive him? Do we know him? And do we give our whole lives to depending upon him? That's the question. Are we eating well? There's points in our life where Jackie and I get on this kick of like, let's just do meat well, veggies well, and eat that. And that's like my jam. Where I'm just like, that was good. Pasta, sometimes. Fries, rarely. You know those other things where you're just like, I don't know that that was good, but this is the good stuff. And when you have the good stuff, you don't need all the extra stuff. That's what I find. I feel like it's the same way in the church of going, if you give me the meat of Jesus, if you give me the nutrients of his grace, if you let me feast on the essentials, I leave going, that was good. That was right. 
I feel energized and strengthened. I need to go lift something heavy. That's the kind of feel you get. You don't want to walk away going, I'm not sure what that was about. You ever felt that? So here's what we're saying, is that Jesus is saying, the bridegroom's here, the feast is ready, this is our primary occupation. Eating the grace of Jesus is the primary occupation of the follower of Jesus. Do we believe that? And I'll be honest, I think it actually makes the faith a lot more simple of going, get out of all the controversies and go, who is Jesus? What has Jesus done? What's my problems? How do I trust in him? It's that simple. But what's hard is doing it, is eating it. I feel like our Christianity is like often a bunch of, like a house full of teenagers where they're like, Dad, we're hungry. I'm like, well, there's food in the fridge. I didn't want to get it. I don't know how to make that. I don't know how to put that together. But it's already made. It's already ready. It's time for us to eat. So my friends, the table's set. Are you ready to eat together? Okay, take a moment to prepare your heart.